Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune Podcast. So I know what you're thinking, uh, another podcast on inflation. I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is going to be data-based. It's not going to be just a bunch of bluster about me talking about how the dollar's going to zero and we're going to hyperinflation tomorrow. And No, I'm going to be based on data, um, laying out um, some, some real things to be concerned about for those that are um, not expecting or pricing in inflation. And, and a lot of it kind of goes back to, to a theme of, I guess, what I've been talking about lately is that inflation is going to be persistent, persistently high, higher than expected by many people, including central planners and, and, and the Federal Reserve and whatnot. And, uh, and that, you know, hyperinflation is a possibility, but, but regardless, high inflation, um, what some would maybe deem at some point hyperinflation, I'm talking about a 50%, 90% valuation of the dollar, um, that that could be in our, you know, short to near term or short to midterm future here in the United States. That when you have, you know, some of the things we'll be talking about here, um, decreasing dollar hegemony, when you have declining amount of, of U.S. debt being held by foreign holders or, or even, you know, private and, and government holders, in the first place, with the exclusion of you know the Federal Reserve, um, that that you know at some point you know, you have to wonder about the dollar's status as a world reserve currency, and and could it fall in line as just another major currency, and and what would that do to the value of the dollar because of how much the dollar is held uh, in in you know forex reserves relative to other major currencies, notably the euro and and yeah and, and pound. That's what I want to talk about here today. Um, data based, right? And a lot of this data I'll be talking about here today. I'm drawing from um, first uh, just a couple recent articles from Zero Hedge. These were were charts essentially on uh, in this case um, some survey data on inflation expectations from the University of Michigan as well as the um, Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, the PCE, um, a, a inflation to measure inflation that tends to be lower than CPI, even lower than CPI, uh, the Consumer Price Index. Um, and, and, and we'll start off with that. Um, I should say the other thing where I'll begin a lot of this and I'll talk about it is just more public data. A lot of it's been, been put together by, uh, in this case, Wolf Richter and WolfStreet.com. Always recommend that website. A lot of great data on there all the time about things like inflation and, and debt and a whole bunch of things that that I talk about and, and I think a lot of you care about. Um, so starting off here though, uh, PCE, uh, new PCE data coming out this week and surprise, surprise, it's high. Um, in the case of the, the, the headline number, PCE 4.4%. Um, this is year over year. This is a um, this is a new high for the PCE number um, dating back to the early 1990s, so the highest since 1990. Uh, the core PCE, which they kind of lop off the uh, the outliers um, of, of you know price changes since you know last they last assessed it, 3.6 percent. Right, PCE tends to be not as extreme in either direction, deflation or inflation. In this case, 3.6 percent year over year for uh, for inflation. Um, so pretty significant, 4.4% year over year, highest since 1991, 3.6% for the, the PCE, which is also higher, the highest since, um, highest since the early 90s. Uh, pretty significant. The, the other piece of data here that, that was really interesting, you know, just two back to back articles by Zero Edge on inflation was inflation expectations, this time from the University of Michigan. Um, a new high since, uh, uh, since 08. 
um, for the inflation expectations over the next year. Uh, in this case, the median expectation was 4.8%. Um, that is up from, you know, a, a year ago when it was, you know, 3%. Um, if, for much of the past several years, it's really hovered around three, two and a half percent. Um, and it goes to show that then this, these expectations are oftentimes wrong. I mean, meaning that, you know, inflation right now is upwards of five percent. And yet, you know, expectations a year ago were roughly three percent or less. Um, but here we are at four point eight percent. And during the next five to 10 years, uh, 2.9%, which is kind of the upper band around that 2.93%. That's about the highest it's been dating back to 2011. That's how far back you'd have to go to find one of those numbers higher than 3%. Um, so these are median figures. And, and I think, you know, it's, um, you know, I think, I think with, with this type of survey data, you have to Take it with a bit of a grain of salt, even if it does, you know, maybe confirm what a lot of us have been talking about in terms of inflation, inflation expectations, especially higher inflation expectations can um, ultimately lead to, I think, higher inflation because inflation is, yes, a monetary phenomenon, but, but so much of, of consumer activity, velocity, uh, all of that velocity of money uh, plays a big role in this as well. And, and certainly higher inflation expectations can lead to higher inflation. Um, with that being said, I think there is a bit of a normalcy. I think that's the right term, a normalcy bias among, uh, I'm sure, a lot of businesses and a lot of investors and a lot of individuals in that, you know, inflation hasn't been persistently high in, in many decades. You know, you have to go back from maybe the early 80s, late 70s to, to find a time in which you'd have consistently high inflation. We had spikes along the way. You know, 08 would be an example, other points in time. But, but consistently high inflation hasn't been very common. And I think people kind of are under the assumption that that's always going to be the case. Um, whether it's those that are kind of in the know about, you know, the Fed and their, you know, target of 2% or others. Um, this notion that, you know, inflation is not something really to be feared. I think what, what, what has to be understood though, if, if you're going to take that viewpoint is you also have to understand and, and maybe come to the assumption that, you know, well, there's been some, you know, a lack of change since then in the marketplace that, that would allow, let's say, the Fed or another entity to bring inflation under control like it had to in the 70s, early 80s by, by raising the interest rates drastically. Fed funds rate was like in the teens back then. I mean, put that in perspective, uh, relative to the last 10 years of, of, you know, really non-normal monetary policy here in the United States and, and elsewhere. Um, you, you'd have to come under some assumption that, that, uh, you know, there's some other factor. If it's not the Fed, then it's um, dropping velocity, um, globalization, uh, whatever it might be, that is pushing inflation lower. And and uh, you know, a reference to my past, I think my last podcast on that, talking about how you know a lot of those trends, especially things like globalization um, and investment funds that have been been kind of stocked away for for decades now by a lot of baby boomers that are now spending that money, that previously low velocity money is now you know kind of re-entering the economy. You know, a lot of other trends that I talked about. I, I referenced Luke Groman from Forest for the Trees pretty heavily in that podcast as well. Um, so there's going to be a normalcy bias, especially when you're looking over the next five to 10 years for inflation. Um, for, for me, you know, if you had to ask me, you know, put my feet to the fire and say, well, Matt, what are your expectations for the next five to 10 years in terms of inflation? Uh, I, if I had to average it out, I would, I would probably say in, in the high single, if not low double digits, 
you know, maybe just say 10%. And that's CPI. I, I think none of us should be under the illusion that CPI or PCE are good measures of inflation. Um, they, they almost always, you know, understate inflation, something that a lot of people should be upset about. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, the big raise that Social Security um, recipients are getting you know, is almost like 6% cost of living adjustment. But but that was after years and years of a lack of cost of living adjustment that kept up with true inflation. It's it's a it's a you know Social Security is fraught with problems. I think, and I'm not just talking about um you know the fact that it's going bankrupt and whatnot, but the idea that we're you know kind of forced to pay into that for our whole life, and and now a lot of that is getting robbed away from us by by inflation, right? Robbed away from from those that are you know of a retirement age or of you know an age to collect social security. Um, no, it's been much, much higher than that for a long time here. And, and, you know, if I put my feet to the fire, 10%, it doesn't mean that there's not a, I mean, what you have to understand here is that, you know, there's the risk of higher, higher inflation. It could be 10% month over month for a while. Um, and, and certainly that would weight it to, to the higher inflation side in a big way. And of course, you know, just because I think it's going to be 10% doesn't mean that, you know, hedging or expecting a tail risk, um, uh, a type of event of, of hyperinflation should be something that shouldn't be considered or, you know, somehow that should come into consideration. I think there is a significant risk of much higher inflation. I, again, I talked about this in the last podcast that, you know, hyperinflation is defined as, I think, 50% month over month, which is ridiculously high inflation and, and I think far higher than what I think many people would consider hyperinflation. I'll take 10% month over month. You annualize that, or, you know, on a month to month basis, that's, you know, that's far greater than 120% in a single year. It's much, much higher. I'm not going to do the math right here, but you take a hundred dollar item and, and it goes up by 10%. Well, after that first month, it's going to be $110, right? But, but then you add another 10% for the second month. Well, by the end of the second month, it's not 120, it's $121, right? And after the third month, you know, somebody do the math here for me, 132 dollars and 10 cents or it you get you get what i'm saying here though um that's that's really high inflation and and that type of inflation gets out of control extremely quickly right anyways i digress well you know another thing i want to talk about here in terms of this this high persistently high inflation uh, i guess outlook that i have um, a lot of it does relate back to the u.s dollar and i know it's become almost a i don't know what you'd call it a meme becomes almost a, um, you know, there's another word here that's on the tip of my tongue, a dogma, I don't know, of many people in the camp uh, that, that I would call home, you know, of this inflation debate that, that uh, you know, it's almost a meme that, that so many people are harping on this idea of the U.S. dollar losing dollar hegemony or using the, losing the, the dollar uh, or the world reserve currency status as if it's, again, going back to the idea of tail risk and, and maybe not most likely outcomes, but certainly very possible outcomes. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people don't give enough credence to. I think there's this notion that, well, yeah, that could happen, but only if, uh, you know, and, and, you know, insert a, a couple crazy outlier events for that to happen. I'm not talking about kind of what I would consider my base case in terms of Fed policy, low interest rates and, and more and more money printing and all that. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about like, well, yeah, maybe if, you know, the U.S. got into a nuclear war. Yeah, maybe if um, there's a major financial crisis here in the United States and, and China became the big financial player in the world. Or maybe if, you know, I don't think those things have to happen for the dollar to lose 
it's kind of de facto world reserve currency status. Not at all. I, I want to start here with some data. This is from, from wolfstreet.com talking about um, who owns our debt? Who the heck even owns our debt? Let me ask a question to you. Who owns our debt? I'm going to talk about who owns it here by percentage, and then we're going to go into uh, you know some of the trends that we've seen in, in, in recent years um, in that respect. But, but who owns our debt, right? Well, the Fed, obviously. That's the easy one that I'm sure I would miss if somebody asked me right off the bat. But the Fed. The Fed owns a huge amount of, of U.S. debt, um, currently upwards of 5 trillion dollars of our of our debt and here i'll bring up the u.s debt clock just so we can get a good up to date i think it's what up upwards of 28 uh, 28 trillion i don't want to oversell it here but upwards of 28 trillion dollars u.s debt so more than five trillion of that is held by um the u.s uh, federal reserve yeah coming up here pretty close to 29 trillion actually uh, so federal reserve owns a lot of it but who else owns it well china and japan right they own a lot of our debt well so this is, we'll start here with trends. Um, they do own a fair bit of it. Japan, um, uh, just shy of 1.3 trillion. Um, China, a little over 1 trillion. So decent amount of our bonds, yeah, hold, held by Japan and China. Now, what's really interesting is that those numbers, you know, they've moved, you know, for instance, Japan has added almost a quarter trillion, around a quarter trillion since kind of their bottom and, and their amount of their holdings uh, back in, in 2018. Um, China's actually uh, given up some of that, those holdings. Um, you know, if you go back to the same time period, 2018, China's given up a little over $100 billion worth of debt, um, U.S. government debt holdings. But what's really important to understand is that the trend line for, for many years now has been that both of those countries, as a percentage of the total amount of U.S. national debt, they're, uh, they're declining. Uh, combined, when you combine them together, um, they've dropped from going back to 2015, about 12.5% now to under 10%, almost 9%, right? Um, in, in the case of, of Japan, um, dropped from a, you know, 5.9-ish percent to about 4.5%. Um, in the case of China, a little over 6.5% to less than 5% of U.S. debt is being held by China. And there's other countries too, right? Um, the U.K., Ireland, Luxembourg. I'm just reading off this list here of other major um, holders, and, and a lot of these are you know, corporations that are holding these off-seas. Uh, Wolf here brings up Apple, among others, right? But in total, um, foreign holders of debt, they have, you know, in the past five years, they've added a little over a trillion dollars worth of debt to their total amount of holdings. But the U.S. debt picture has, you know, the total amount of U.S. debt has, has increased so much in that time period that the peak, you know, one of the most recent peaks back in, in, in 20... Um, 12, 2013, 2014, 20, that kind of time period was, was around 34%. Uh, today it's, it's just a little bit above 25%. So even though they're slightly adding, it's nowhere near the pace that the U.S. government is actually adding to our total amount of, of debt. So who, who the heck is buying it? Well, again, a lot of it goes back to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has monetized a massive amount of, of U.S. debt. Like I said, currently um, north of $5 trillion. Um, they also own a, a massive amount of mortgage-backed securities, which is sort of another way of sanitizing um, debt, in this case consumer debt, right? Um, certainly a sanitizing in a, in a very risky manner, uh, but, but they own a big part of it. Um, but, but elsewhere, other than the Fed, I mean, it, 
broadly speaking, as I said, national, you know, international foreign holders uh, that decreased in the last six, seven, eight years from about 34% to, to 25, a little over 25%. What that means is that domestic holders have increased significantly. And yes, the Fed is part of that. Um, but, but there's other people to blame here too. Um, and other entities. Um, U- U.S. government funds, by the way, have continued to decrease. A lot of this is like Social Security and other pensions uh, run by the U.S. government. So that's dropped since about 2008, uh, around 43, 44% now to, to around 21, 22%. But, but the rest of the buying has mostly been domestic. The Fed has increased their percentage of holdings from about 10% to about 18% of the total amount of debt now being held by the Fed. That's from the, the bottom in about 2019 uh, to, to now. Um, U.S. banks have continued to increase their nominal and, and as a percentage, their holdings over the past um, several years. Um, previously, between you know four and three percent, now to around almost five percent. Um, you have uh, institutions and individuals as a whole; um, they've kind of been you know the big suckers in a lot of this. You look at U.S. government debt held by mutual funds and ETFs. Uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, around 4% now, 14%, right? I think this is something that so many people are not aware of, you know, the idea of a 401k or a similar, you know, investment strategy. I get it. You get that matched amount from your employer in many cases and you get the tax benefits and whatnot. But, but what I think a lot of people don't understand is that when they, when they do something like that or, or when they buy a, you know, a mutual fund or, or certainly index funds, they don't always understand or care to look at what's actually in it. And a lot of it is not bad, you know, blue chip stocks and whatnot. You know, if you want exposure to the equity market, ETFs, mutual funds, are, they're a great simple way for somebody that doesn't want to bother with it to get invested in those. You know, we can, we can go back and forth about, you know, whether those are good investments or not. But, but what a lot of people don't realize is that they have a lot of really dead weight in those assets, bonds that, that are yielding, well, negative. And, and, and real yields, you know, nominally very low. A lot of these are under 2% for a lot of these bonds. I think, you know, I could check here. I don't even know what the 30 year, the long end 30 year U.S. Treasury yield, but it's not a whole lot relative to inflation, you know, 5%, 5 plus percent. Um, the U.S. 30 year Treasury, this is from CNBC. Yeah, right around 2% currently. <laughs> That's. It's a far cry from inflation, a little over 2%. Far cry from the current rate of inflation. People just don't know where their money is. And yet, I mean, they're kind of the big suckers in this whole picture. Um, a lot of it has been, you know, mutual funds, ETFs, and, and similar, you know, buyers. Um, pension funds continue to buy until just this past year. As a percentage, though, of the total amount of debt, they haven't kept up with that. They're now holding around 11%. Uh, 20 years ago, is close to like 18%. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of this, like I said, is yes, you have institutional, you know, across the board, a lot of these firms with the exam, with the exception of like the social security trust fund and U.S. government pension funds, a lot of these have been net buyers more recently in terms of nominal amounts of, of bonds. But as a percentage, they haven't been keeping pace in a lot of cases with the exception of some domestic buyers and of course the federal reserve. That who, that's who owns our debt, right? And, and, um, you know, you have to wonder here, you know, when it becomes more and more of a domestic problem, and it's not just um, an international problem of who owns our debt, you know, and, and will, will they or will they not buy it. But when it becomes a question of whether or not individual and, or, or domestic buyers will or will not buy that debt, 
when more and more of it comes down to whether or not the Federal Reserve is going to monetize that debt and essentially sanitize it uh, to some extent in terms of inflation, that's a that's precarious position to be in. Moving on, um, U.S. dollar status as the global reserve currency. You know, a lot of times I describe you know monetary policy from the Fed or from elsewhere as a you know a really slow moving ship. Um, that it's not something that they can turn overnight, except in cases of, of, you know, crisis, right? You know, even an aircraft carrier can, you know, kind of conduct one of those, those cool banked turns, you know, that they can do pretty quickly. Uh, but even that's pretty slow compared to a lot of other, you know, boats and a lot of other ships. Um, in the U.S. dollar share of global reserve currency, again, this is from wolfstreet.com, uh, it continues to be a slow, slow grind downward. Going back about seven years to 2014, um, the U.S. percentage of out, so this percentage of allocated reserves. So these are global reserve currencies, right? These other foreign banks, governments that own these forex reserves, oftentimes protect their own currency. Um, they uh, they hold those there for a reason. Um, back in you know 2014, that was around 66 percent. Today, and this doesn't sound like you know this this number doesn't sound like a lot of a change. But around 60, uh, a little below 60%, a little above 59%. So it's about a 6, 7% drop. But it's been a slow grind downwards. And, you know, who's kind of filled that gap? Well, uh, to some extent, it's been the euro, but not really significantly. Otherwise, it's mostly been some of these other smaller currencies, um, the yen, eh, to some extent the pound. Um, but it's been other smaller currencies, Canadian and Australian dollar, the yuan, um, that's been mostly what it is. And I mean, this whole talk of like yuan being the new reserve currency, I mean, people, it's at 2.5% if we're talking about percentage of global, um, you know, reserve uh, um, currencies, 2.5%. It's a long ways from Canada to that point. I, I guess what I've been saying here, though, for a while now is that the U.S. dollar doesn't have to be you know, we don't have to have a world reserve currency as we know it in the future. You know, in the past, it's been the pound. In the past, it's been, um, you know, other, you know, mostly European currencies. And currently right now, it's the dollar. Uh, you know, in a new paradigm, we don't need it to be the the yuan or, or the yen or the euro. Um, it can be something that resembles uh, um, SDRs. Uh, it can be something that takes into a basket of, of many of these other currencies. And we can see the dollar drop to, you know, 50, 40, 30, 20% of global reserve currency and see others rise. And um, and, and that would protect a lot of these com- countries, uh, likely, from, from further devaluation of the dollar. And I think it's something they'll continue to do if they see that the Fed and the U.S. government simply is not serious about addressing this inflation problem. Because how are they going to? They can't raise rates and they can't cut the balance sheet, the Federal Reserve balance sheet. They can't cut spending. They, I mean, what what do they have to address this inflation? They're not going to. And I think we'll continue to see that grind lower. And eventually, we'll no longer be the de facto reserve currency. We'll have something to replace it. Certainly, cryptocurrencies and precious metals are going to be waiting in the fold as well. But it's not going to be maybe them individually. It's going to be, it's going to look very different from what we have right now. I don't think it's going to be one currency um, but, but of course, all of that, those those dollars coming back home that are now held in these reserves, those are going to come back with a vengeance, right? 
um, those dollars that are now being used for global trade. Yeah, the dollar might continue to be a, a widely used currency in terms of global trade. I'm talking big picture five, 10 years from now, but but maybe not to the same extent that it is right now because there's a risk with that in an appreciating currency. Um, there's a geopolitical motive for a lot of these countries to decrease their use of dollar dollars for, for trade. And that's all going to bring dollars back home, right? You have a greater monetary supply back home now at that point. And you have a um, you have an inflation problem because of that. Well, you already have inflation, which causes that in the first place. And you're going to get higher inflation with a greater supply at home, especially if a lot of those dollars, you know, the, the reserve currency dollars, um, are now going to be coming back home with much, much higher uh, velocity than they were before because they were primarily just sitting there. This is this is like I said, a lot of this is data, and, and a lot of this is charts, and a lot of this is I think really important stuff to go over. Uh, it's it's maybe important at times to look at the big picture. I think it's also important to get caught up sometimes in this minutia of these individual data sets of these individual trends that we're seeing, whether it's you know share of the global reserve currency or. Um, you know, the PCE or inflation expectations month to month. I think it's important to, to look at those and to have a real data based, um, thesis or outlook rather than just saying inflation's going higher because, you know, printer goes burr. I mean, that's, I, th- I think that's a great way to sum it up. And I think it speaks well to kind of the nihilism or the, uh, flippant attitude that so many have during the Fed, uh, towards the Fed and the U.S. government, which I don't have a problem with whatsoever. And I completely get it. But, but inflation is, is very real and it's not something to have a nihilistic or a flippant attitude towards. Um, it's coming in a big way and it's much higher than many will expect. So I, uh, I appreciate each of you sticking around for this 25 plus minutes of this, today's podcast. Certainly would appreciate a like, a subscribe, comment down below if you have any thoughts on this today. Of course, I also have my recent, um, book published, uh, gosh, two weeks ago now, um, zero sum. Uh, there's a link down below in the description. Uh, book one of the Civil Strife series. It's a, a fiction, uh, sort of a post-apocalyptic thriller type book. It uh, essentially tells a tale of, of you know, individuals, right? We're, we're not just talking about news articles here, but individuals living through a scenario in which there's sort of a coordinated, um, um, you know, economic and, and societal uh, collapse. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a political element to it as well. And, and it's something I think a lot of you enjoy, will enjoy. Many of you guys have already bought it, have, have given me really positive reviews on that, both, uh, individually or, or on the platforms, but it's available on Amazon. There's a link down below in the description to the ebook, the uh, paperback, hardcover, and the audio version. So I certainly would appreciate your help with that. As always, I'd like to thank every one of you, uh, from the bottom of my heart for tuning into, uh, today's podcast and God bless.